2: on News Radio 680
3: WPTF.
1: And I'm Doug Lewis, certified financial planner,
3: and I'm Deborah Lewis, certified financial planner, and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. There was a question. Wasn't there Deb about IRAs and beneficiaries? really was, and it was one of the newer ones, or the ones that we get all the time, but a new version of it. So, Doug, could you briefly explain some of the options for selecting the beneficiary of an IRA, especially if this person wants to save as much in taxes as possible?
1: Yeah. You know, the question of IRA beneficiaries, Debs, is quite uh, complicated, actually. First of all, there's the question of whether a person is married or not married. Now, If they are married, then, of course, the spouse will say it's a husband and a wife. The wife, if the husband dies first, can always take the husband's IRA and roll it over into the IRA of the wife tax-free. Okay. But then the question is, what happens next? Now, if each of the husband and the wife, if each of them have written in their IRA that the beneficiary is the other... At the first death, when the wife, who is the successor in this case, rolls it into hers, then the beneficiary on hers needs to be changed, because she had him as the beneficiary. She might have had her children as successor beneficiaries, but she needs to change the beneficiary to where they are now her her desires, so they are now the primary ones. Then, of course, comes the question of, at this second death, at the death of the spouse, then comes the question of what happens. Well, in the normal case, there is no spouse, and so the children get the IRA, but have to pay the taxes. And that's the most common situation, because in most cases, they need the money, and they want their the inherited. children need the money. The children need the money.
3: Right. So let's say we're talking about a situation where you have uh, dad dies. He did not need the money, but was already taking the required minimum distribution because he was over 70 and a half years old. Right. And so that started. Now dad dies. Mom's now got a, a question, a, a widow, but what to do she's got the important decision of how to take care of dad's IRA Distribution and what to do with it. And let's say she doesn't need the income.
1: Okay, well, first of all, she can roll it into hers because she is the spouse, and that's a tax-free move, but she must continue taking the distributions that he was taking. However, they can be recomputed over her life rather than over his life, which might reduce the amount that's required as a minimum to come out, leaving more in there for tax Free or tax-deferred accumulation,
3: and that's good because that's this person's intent. How do I take out as little as possible? Because I don't need it to live on. Right. Because I don't want to pay unnecessary taxes on income that I don't really need. Right. So if I if I am now the the surviving spouse, and that's my concern, I can now at this point
1: only take out the required minimum distribution over my lifetime. Exactly. Okay. All right. That leaves more in there and reduces the amount that's got to come out. Now what happens when this spouse dies? When this spouse dies, then assuming that the children don't need it. All have
3: jobs, gainfully employed, are doing fine and don't want unnecessary income to pay unnecessary taxes on. Right. But prior to her dying, she probably
2: she would have her to her children as beneficiaries of her IRA, right? She would
1: have to. That's right. That's exactly right. So, so if this, s- this goal is to save taxes over all three generations, then you want to stretch out the required payments from the IRA as long as, peri- as possible. And so that means there's more earnings left in the IRA, not taxed. And the way you do that is you go ahead and at that second death, the children then leave it as an IRA in the name of their mother, but them as the beneficiary, and this is called a beneficiary IRA or a stretch IRA, which lets them go ahead and continue stretching out those payments basically over their lives. In this case, sometimes you can have the payment stretched out over 30 or 40 years after your death. So it's a very powerful uh, option for those where it is not needed. Now, of course, if you're single, it's totally different. But then it's to your advantage to name a beneficiary who's younger than yourself, because this will allow the beneficiary to further stretch out the payments when he or she inherits this IRA on the single person's death. So, so
3: all of this is is answering the question, if I don't need the income, I don't want to pay the taxes, what are my options and how can I handle that?
1: That's exactly right. And there are a lot of options. If you don't do it right, then you can hurt oh, yeah. yourself and you can lose a lot to taxes that weren't necessary. So it's good to use a certified financial planner that knows all of these options and can go ahead and do them.
2: And and in simple terms, if you're setting up an IRA your custodian is going to, in the paperwork, make sure that you designate either your spouse is the beneficiary and uh, then your children
3: if you don't have a spouse, right? That's right. That's right. But in answering the question of 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 the income not being needed, this is very helpful. And it's one of those frequent questions. So very good. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda and Deborah Lewis on News Radio
2: 680 WPTF.
4: Have you seen the Lewis Financial Management website? It's easy to get to DougandLinda.com. That's DougandLinda.com.
3: Well, Doug, Linda, there are, I think, a couple questions that are all in regard to retirement planning and. I thought we might uh, spend a little time on that, but in gathering the information, there are a lot of pieces that are useful to help quantify retirement planning. And retirement planning is really just, it just requires a a methodical approach that identifies and quantifies each important component that affects the asset accumulation, income management, and product selection. And here are some of those. What are some of those things that we need to quantify?
1: Well, I think the key word in your question, Deborah, is quantify, because most people do not go ahead and quantify. They don't quantify, uh, and quantify means puts numbers to things. They really don't think about putting numbers to their uh, desire for financial independence. So, the first order of business for sure is taking a tally of everything you own, quantifying, and then quantifying what is the difference between your financial assets and your non financial assets, or I like to call it your use assets and your non use assets or your investment assets. Now, a use asset, what would be a use asset, Deborah? Uh, your home, your <clears> car. <throat> Exactly, an automobile. So it's and he's,
2: not an investment asset, it's a use
1: asset. That's exactly right. So we need to separate all of those use assets because they are useless as far as our computation or our quantifying. And once we've uh, separated them, then we need to go ahead and quantify those assets for investments value your retirement into income and income streams. So, in other words, I like to talk about chickens and eggs. We need to find out what is the value of the chickens and what's the la- the amount of the eggs that can come off of these. And so, when we think of assets and income, we need to remember that assets sometimes can be converted to a monthly income and sometimes monthly income can be ver- converted to an asset. And this is one reason why it's so difficult for many people Uh, to actually quantify. They they don't think this way. They need the help of a financial planner who can actually quantify, live in the world of numbers and help them quantify. And it is very crucial to take that first step of quantifying the assets.
4: For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
2: You know, it's interesting. Um, many times when I speak to to listeners that call in at the office, some people's attitude is, "Well, I've got all this stuff," and they it's it, you know. And then the more we talk about exactly what it is they have, and I agree with you, you need to quantify what is all the stuff because if you're if you want a sound
3: retirement, there are steps. To that
2: right, Doug.
1: There are that, and most people don't take these steps. That's the whole thing. And they I just think
3: to, I think to Linda's point is that you know if you don't quantify a, if you quantify a use asset as an investment asset
1: or vice versa, which is
3: what usually happens, then you, you walk into retirement not knowing exactly what you're going to be using during retirement. People that call our office
1: all the time make that mistake, don't they, Linda? You ask them yes. how much have you accumulated, and right away they tell you how much their home is worth. Right.
3: That's right. a meaningless number. Right, unless you decide to be homeless.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you- but, but the more important thing is, you know, people are busy in their lives, and so they don't always attend to it. So that's uh, the first step to a sound retirement, is, is, is quantifying your assets and your net worth.
1: What about quantifying risk coverage? Well, that's also important and I don't think many people understand how to do this. Risk coverage is a fancy term for insurance. In other words, risk by defin- insurance by definition is risk transfer where you're transferring the risk of something happening to an insurance company. So, in the simplest language, if you have accumulated, after you've quantified and everything says that you are able to be financially independent and live off of your investment assets now, you and your wife, then you have no need for life insurance because certainly if two of you can live off of those assets, one of you can. Okay. On the other hand, after quantifying and you find out that you are not able to right now, then we have to go ahead and transfer the risk of you dying today And your family missing that income. That's right. We need to find out how much is needed to give an asset base large enough to produce the necessary income so that the surviving spouse could be financially independent. And we need to get the cheapest kind. And generally, I only like to get term insurance that will go ahead and cover the shortest period of time because I don't think that commissions should be part of the equation and... Whole life insurance, variable life insurance, those are high commission items that are sold very much to people who don't need it. I think the cheapest type of insurance, which has the lowest commission, sometimes no commission, for a period of time, maybe a 10-year level term policy, 15-year level term policy, until you're financially independent. And so
3: really you would know what you need once you've quantified how much time I need to transfer that risk.
1: That's right. If I
3: were to die... She's going to need my income for X amount of years to cover X amount of items.
1: That's exactly you right. To buy what we need. That's exactly right. And we need to get all emotional aspects out of this. We don't need any baby insurance, insurance on my children in case my children die. I've got enough money to bury them. Forget about that. Uh, we don't need to have what's called wife insurance when the husband is the major earner and there's no children at home and why do we have insurance on her life that would cause him grief if she dies but would not be a financial liability to him? We need to get the emotional pieces out and quantify. And Just quantify. get down to to quantifying. What yeah. is the need?
2: Yeah, what is the need? And in some cases, because people are living longer or because people have ailments, you know, their health, if they have some health issues, then you also have to take that into consideration, right? If, if mom... Uh, you know, is on the verge of dementia or Alzheimer's, then you're going to need more money to take care of her in case she has to go to a assisted living or a nursing home, right?
1: All those so are quantifiable. All That's right.
3: those factors. And we find so many people who are taking care of multiple generations I've got the kids I'm taking care of I've got the parents I'm taking care of yes we've got ourselves that we're taking care of I mean it, it, it's it's those layers you're listening to money matters with
2: Doug and Linda and Deborah Lewis on news radio 680wPTF thank you for listening tonight
4: have you seen the Lewis Financial Management website it's easy to get to doug that's doug
1: All right, we've covered certain steps that are needed for retirement in the way of quantifying. First, we have to quantify assets. Then we have to quantify risk coverage. It's important to continue quantifying.
3: Shouldn't you compare expenditure needs against anticipated income?
1: That is another set of numbers. That's exactly right. You need to go ahead and quantify. Again, once you've figured out what are your needs? Then you need to figure out what kind of income is going to be there. So you have to work it all out in paper, on paper. Make your retirement plan work in reality first on paper. Find out how much you're going to have in the way of guaranteed income to cover your fixed living expenses like food and housing and health insurance premiums and all that. And then also build in your discretionary expenses such as uh, travel um how about that trip to Costa Rica you've been waiting to take? <laughs> Ziplining in Costa Rica. Uh, how about uh, giving to the kids or the grandkids? That's right. Uh, uh clothing. All those wish list expenses, they need to be in there and they need to be added to the quantifying. Hey Joe, this is the Lewises, Doug and Deborah. How can we help you this evening? Hi Doug
5: uh, good evening. I appreciate what you guys do. It's great information. I listen almost, almost every Sunday evening. Well, thank, thank
1: you, you so much.
5: <laughs> okay, question I have. Uh, I have a we have I have a variable annuity that I started in '97. And in a nutshell, it we've invested about seventy one, almost seventy two thousand dollars in it. Today, it's worth. They tell me the last statement. The annuity value was up to 136, almost 137,000. All right. And and I've been on it long enough. I can get out of it if I wanted to without any penalty. And I'm trying to, you know, the way the market baskets up and down, you know, I've watched this thing over the years. It has grown and it has decreased and grown and decreased. Uh, This is the highest highest that it's been since we've had it. All right. Uh, And I'm curious to to write it out, it's a variable annuity, write it out uh, or cash it in and invest in something that's a little more stable.
1: All right, let's get some facts in front of us, and then I'll see if I can give you the best advice I can. Okay. Number one, how old are you? I'm about 68. You're 68 years old. Married or single? Married. Married. Uh, still working or retired?
5: No, both, both my wife and I are retired, and oh. we have pension income that's more than enough to cover our,
1: our monthly expenses. All right, well, that's very important. Okay, so retired couple... In your late, in your uh, uh, middle to late sixties, right. and you have enough pension income coming in to support your living expenses. Now, what does your investment portfolio look like? Uh, in other words, in terms of dollars, how much do you okay, have?
5: Re- outside of this, we have about eight hundred thousand dollars in investments in bonds, stocks, and uh, IRA money. We're not even touching the IRA money yet until we, we, we don't even kind of have to until we're seventy and a half. That's,
1: so that's correct. That's All accurate. right. So the eight hundred thousand, most of that is in retirement monies. Like uh, IRAs. Well,
5: it, it, well I, about half this entire day. The it is got you know, a you know, few stocks and bonds. Mostly, I uh, got one large. I got a huge um, $200,000 uh, Franklin Templeton a tax exempt fund that we just keep putting money back into. It's
3: been growing very well for all the years. And that's outside the retirement fund?
5: Yes, it is. It's outside the IRAs. And the IRAs, like I said, we haven't even... we we've Okay. Them as long so about
1: 400... All right, now let's go over to the annuity. Is the annuity qualified or non-qualified? It's a, um,
5: uh, I think it's qualified. Look at
1: the statement earlier today. If it's qualified, it's part of a retirement plan, part of an IRA. It's a non-qualified. Business. It's non-qualified. Yeah. All right, this means you bought it in 1997 for with after-tax dollars. Yes. Okay. Uh, first question you asked was, Will there be any uh, uh, penalty to get out of it? Well, there's two answers to that question. The first is from the uh, insurance company that uh, is managing the whole annuity, and the second is from the IRS. Okay. From the insurance company's view, that's called the commission, because, in, because what they call a surrender penalty on annuities right. is really the commission that the insurance agent who sold it to you got, and you never knew about it, because it's not disclosed on a statement. Right. So, more than likely, but most surrender penalties... They are usually maybe five years, six years. If it's as old as 1997, my guess is you have no surrender penalty anymore.
5: Yeah, that, that they told me. I'd call them and ask them if there is no surrender.
1: All right, so so that's the first thing. Okay, all right. And for our listeners, if you have annuities and they're non-qualified, if you look on your statement and you see surrender value as one number and cash value as another, and if the surrender value is lower than the cash value, that is the difference of the amount of commission that hasn't been yet paid back to uh, the insurance company and so forth. All right, now let's go to the other one. All right, if you invested... Seven... The IRS. Yes. Okay. okay the IRS, right. Okay. All right, if you invested $72,000 and it was in a variable annuity and it was non-qualified, then sure. indeed you will pay tax on any gain or appreciation... You invested 72,000. Today it's worth 137,000. Okay. If you are under 59 and a half, you would pay a 10% penalty upon surrendering it and cashing it in. But because you're over 59 and a half, there will be no 10% penalty, but there will be taxation on the in, on the difference between the 72 and the 137. Okay. Unless you've added more to it. No,
5: we that was, that was a was
1: that money was we just one time, and that was it. Okay, all right. So we're talking about uh, the that that gain there. Unfortunately, that gain is taxed as ordinary income, not capital gain. Okay. Uh, that's the uniqueness about annuities, as opposed to if it was a mutual fund that you cashed in, it would be capital gain. Right. All of that being said, uh, I would encourage you, with your portfolio as large as it is, and at your age, and you're in, you're in you know a very mm-hmm. Yeah, you're in a, in, a, in a real interesting age bracket. You might want to call my office, schedule an appointment to meet with me, and I will go ahead and give you the uh, my opinion about how the whole thing looks. But I would okay. say that we want to run a tax analysis. You should come out of it, yes, but I wouldn't do it until we take a look and see. Do you have okay. anything to offset that? Okay. But uh, no, IRS ten percent penalty. No okay. surrender penalty. And yes, uh, I, there's no reason, I, I, I personally don't think annuities are very good right. investment choices. They're insurance products and I, I rarely will recommend them, uh, except in certain cases where we need an immediate annuity to support somebody right away.
5: Yeah, because my concern was, you know, by if, if surrendering it and you know, uh, right now it's worth about 137 if I were to give, it, give that all back and I know it'd be, you know, the location portion in taxes we're really paying for the taxes and then putting whatever's left from that into uh, something that's you know less volatile
1: that's right that's right I mean sometimes you just gotta cut bait and fish somewhere else yeah. you know what I mean at this point you know, we're, we're living
5: comfortably and I, I you know, our resources should outlive us hopefully uh, our, our kids are doing well so we don't leave anything that's fine. so well
1: oh, that's uh, another reason by the way to get out of the annuity I forgot to tell you if you die and you still own the annuity whoever inherits it does not get a step-up in basis that they would get on any other kind of asset that you own. Okay. In other words, they would pay ordinary income tax as if it was a salary to them. So there's no reason. That's different in a mutual fund. If you die your mutual funds, they can go ahead and sell them the day after they inherit them, no right. matter how big a gain, with a step-up in basis tax-free.
5: Now, now my wife is a beneficiary. in this. She would, if I died first, she would get it all tax-free or taxed
1: tax on it. Well, no, she will not go ahead. Well, let me see. She's the beneficiary. Uh... Because the, the annuities in my name
5: only, with her as the beneficiary, It was a aviator for well, a while, so we did it that mm-hmm. way to protect
1: her. Would it fall under. I the marital exclusion and just not be? Or is it because it's, it's an insurance? I don't think so. I'll have to look that one up. Because, okay. yeah, if you call me at my office, I'll have the answer for you. Okay. I think she would pay tax on the gain that she inherits. For sure, if it goes to one of your kids. But I don't know if there's a way that she can receive it without paying the tax. I don't think so. I think she's going to be, she She would be taxed on it. That's my guess. But I'll put a qualifier on that.
5: Three, your number, and I will call.
1: nine one nine eight eight 727000. That's 919 7, Okay. By the way, if you've never been to our website, we've redone it recently. The website is called dougandlinda.com. Okay. Good deal. I'll give you a call in the next week or so. Thank you, Joe. Well,
2: thanks so Thank much you. for calling, Joe. Take Thank care. You. Have a great Have week. Nice uh, bye bye. Thank you. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF.
1: All right, so we are on the subject of what are the seven steps or what are the steps to a sound retirement. And we were focusing on the matter of quantifying. It's all a matter of numbers. You begin with quantifying the assets that you have first by separating your use assets, such as a home, from your investment assets, then quantifying your investment assets as to what is their income potential, what is their value calling them either chickens or eggs, which ones can be changed from one to the other. We then went to the second step, which was quantifying the risk that needs to be transferred by means of insurance until you are there. We then covered the third step, which was comparing our needs with our future desired income. Not only the recurring needs, the but the, right. but also the I want to. The wish list expenses. Mm -hmm. Anticipated. Where do we go from there?
3: Comparing the amount needed in retirement against total assets.
1: Yeah, that is the fourth thing we need to quantify. Besides calculating your income and your expenses at the point of retirement, you need to figure out whether your funds are going to last throughout your retirement years. In other words, you want to quantify, and this is very tricky. Because it is. yeah, this Deborah is where we spend the most amount of time. That's right. Most uh, financial planners do something that we don't like, and almost all the software programs that you can buy out there do that. What we don't like, they quantify what's called net present value. Explain what that means, Deborah.
3: Well, it's sort of a, a way of taking what you're going to need as a fixed lump sum or amount and then looking at it as if it would support you for the rest of your retirement, yours or your lifetime.
1: And then at the and year that you die, how much do you have left? Zero.
3: So it's a depletion mesh method.
1: We don't like that you know. method at all. We want to quantify what is needed for you to have income coming from your investment portfolio to support you at your desired lifestyle and still not go down over your life. Maintain its value or at least keep up with inflation but not deplete that is very important
3: right because there's the obvious what if i live one day longer that's right i mean i I can guess how long (laughs) i'm gonna live but if i live one day longer i've depleted my assets that's right so that would be comparing the uh, need in retirement to against your total assets and how to make that work
1: yeah and i think I think the, uh, the, the matter of risk hasn't been touched yet, but that is a matter that is very, very important because uh, so many people stop right there when they get this far, they get it on paper, but they, 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 they go to these free lunch seminars out there and they go to this website or they hear this, this radio person or this television person say, oh, you can do this and this will give you this and this will give you that. Well, we haven't touched this matter of risk yet. And uh, that's not always the case. The fine print always says there are no guarantees. Right. <laughs> and, and realizing that there are no, no guarantees, guarantees. Right. Then you need to have someone help you evaluate what are suitable investments that are relative to your risk tolerance, your investment knowledge, and what is the volatility that your portfolio can sustain while you're drawing out. Uh, so, in short, I would say... You need to not invest at all beyond your own skills, including those of your advisor. If your advisor is trying to sell you something that you don't understand, even may, you may not even know if it's too risky. And for you, you may underfigure out that he doesn't understand it either. That's right. That's a good red flag that's to um, right. avoid that.
2: And one of the um, one of the things that comes up with a lot of with. Some of our listeners that that I've spoken with is that the person that sold them, whatever it was they were buying, didn't disclose what they were paid.
1: I think that is so crucial, Linda. It is. You as the investor, you should always ask your investment advisor, your financial planner, exactly how much do you make on this? In this transaction. In this transaction, you should always ask, if it is a mutual fund with a load, how much is the load that you get? If it's an annuity, how much is your commission? If it's a REIT, how much do you make? That should be totally transparent. Because there is no reason to not know. That's right.
3: And I would say the most important part, Doug, Glenda, is the the very last point, which is keeping this plan current. You can quantify and quantify, but you need to make sure that that quantification of those numbers is updated. Exactly, because things could change in one year,
2: and they usually do. (laughs) And uh, your health status might change, or your health care costs could change or go up or go down. Uh, your life expectancy things change.
1: That's exactly right.
2: Exactly, and uh, for other folks, uh, your employment status might change, like Chris, our our recent caller, and even your expected retirement might you know retirement date might change. And for others uh, of our listeners, and our hearts go out to you. Some have suffered the loss of a spouse through either death or divorce. So, whatever your situation is, it's important to work with a qualified advisor, a certified financial planner, that can help you uh, with your many steps to planning your retirement and a comfortable, comfortable retirement at that. You're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda and Deborah Lewis on News Radio 680 WPTF.
4: For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
1: Bobby, how can I help you this evening? Hi, Doug. Linda, how are you this evening? Fine, oh, how are you? fine. Thanks for calling.
6: In forming a corporation between two individuals where each owns 50% of the stock, the consideration is whether in having a cross-purchase agreement for each of us to hold an insurance policy on the other partner to fund the purchase of that, or to hold an insurance policy on ourselves and either will or gift our half of the corporation to the other in the event of our death. The idea is that in the event I die, my wife does not want any of the stock; She does not want anything to do with the company.
1: Sure, I mean, that's standard in small businesses. Exactly.
6: We're just trying to figure out the best way to handle the transfer of the
1: stock. I like the stock redemption method, to tell you the truth, best, which is not one of the two choices you made.
6: Explain that briefly to
1: me. Well, the question is, who gets the insurance proceeds? Right. The fallacy in the one that you laid out as choice number two is that she writes it in her will that she's going to do something with the stock. Well, how does your partner know when she changes her will? Or how do you know when your partner changes his will? You wouldn't know that, so there's no control. Right. Let's put it the other way. Your partner's Your partner dies and his wife gets stock in the company. Now, you got to go ahead and deal with her in running this company and you don't want to deal with her and she doesn't know how to. And so, but she's got these stock certificates. Okay. All right. So, the way I prefer to see it is where the company buys life insurance on the two of you for the value of the stock. Okay. Now, if your partner dies, then the... Beneficiary of the policy is the corporation. And there is a buy sell agreement that says the corporation must use that money to purchase the stock from your partner's widow, which means that the proceeds come back to the corporation. The corporation then turns around and gives them to her. She gives the corporation back its certificates, and you're the sole remaining shareholder.
6: Does that change the value of the company in any way? Are there any tax consequences there?
1: Well, there are some pros and cons tax-wise in both the cross-purchase and the stock redemption method, and I would have to go out and sp- i have to go ahead and spend some time with you laying out the pros and cons of each. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I generally like the method of a stock redemption because I uh, you can use it all as um, you know as a deductible expense to the corporation. And yes, it will go ahead and increase the value, you know, uh, of the corporation, but I don't think that's a major issue here. I think uh, I generally prefer that one, but I think that's probably as far as I should go on the air with this one because uh, I need to get a lot more facts in front of me before I go any further. But I think the stock redemption versus the cross-purchase uh, makes low. And you can usually get the insurance cheaper. Mm-hmm. Okay. And by the way, how old are you guys? 36. 36, you might want to go ahead and get a level term policies, which are dirt cheap.
6: Okay. Well, that's what we have, as a matter of fact.
1: Yeah, level term policies, you know, for the next 10, well, you could get 20-year level term policies on stuff on, on, for something like this, and eventually, you'll be able to go ahead and uh, self-fund the buy-sell. All Right.
6: Not being familiar with the stock redemption uh, scenario that you've thrown out here, I'm going to mull that over a little bit. I may want to give you a call and come out and speak with
1: you about it. Sure. welcome to.
2: That number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
1: Okay. Thank you for calling, Bobby. Thanks, Doug. All right. Bye-bye now.
2: You're listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda and Deborah Lewis. And we'd like to let our listeners know that if you're on your computer, you can live stream and listen to the show while you're on your computer. Just go to WPTF.com and go to our show. Money Matters. With the Lewis's. And then live stream the show. And so you can join us wherever you are in the United States or in the world.
1: That's right. And that's visit right. visit
2: our website at DougAndLinda.com if you would like more information
3: about our services. Well, Doug, Linda, usually we get love letters from folks who are listening to the show. And um, very infrequently, we receive a letter that will either uh, say that they didn't like our advice or they didn't agree with our advice, which is perfectly fine. It's free. I mean, (laughs) can't please everybody. Right. And and, and we're just one of many people out there, you know, giving our advice. However, I really liked receiving this letter because it pointed to a lot of the conversation pieces that we have in the office on a day Daily basis. And this letter came from a gentleman who, while he thought he was disagreeing, he actually was pointing out some of the very basic things about the world of investing in funds that is still so confusing for most everybody who has to make these choices about going into mutual funds and the world of investing.
1: You know, Deborah, uh, I wish uh, Barry's his name, and I wish Barry had given us uh, a return address on his letter that came in because I would have loved to have written an answer back, but I just have to do it over the air because it was a very interesting letter. Of course, he does think that I'm, uh, I think he says, either you're <laughs> ignorant or a <laughs> no, no, liar. No, 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 no but what <laughs> I really a very li- strong <laughs> opinion. Okay, whoa, all wait, right, wait, wait, but whoa, 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 whoa. Let, let me clarify. Calm what down, I, calm down. What I really <laughs> liked about the letter was he says that he has been listening for years, almost every week, and I think that's great. Yes, that's great. Now, unfortunately, he has a little bit of confusion in his understanding, but he sent in this article, which was very uh, interesting article entitled, Load Funds Cost More Than You Think. And of course, he felt, and as he said in his letter to me, that I know, Doug, that you are against load funds and against index funds, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's really interesting to look at this subject because um, Barry's not the only one who's ignorant. There's a lot of ignorance that is out there about the issue of selecting managers. Now, the first thing to realize, and it was in the article that he sent me, the article was written by a gentleman by the name of Jack Huff, and the article he had uh, sent me said that most investors already know to avoid load funds, but new research adds some surprising reasons as to why. Now, this is very interesting because, indeed, most load funds cannot show that they have done very much versus a no-load fund. There is no consideration or no results to any study that load funds do better than no load funds. I certainly agree, and I think uh, that's a given.
4: Have you seen the Lewis Financial Management website? It's easy to get to. DougandLynda.com. That's DougandLynda.com.
1: All right, now it says here in the article uh, that not only a load fund, but there is a percent let me see. He says in the article, new research suggests that no load or direct sold funds compare better on risk, manager talent, and most different returns, even after adjusting the differences in fees. The question comes, we have to understand what is the load, first That's of all. That's what I was
3: going to say. Yeah. We've already thrown out a lot of words that I think are the source of a lot of confusion. Okay. So if you if maybe begin with some of the Right, definitions let, of
1: these terms that are thrown around. Good. All right, let's get some definitions. Load is a a commission, a commission paid not to the mutual fund company, but to the stockbroker or whoever is selling the mutual fund to you so that you can hopefully get your money into the hands of the manager. Okay, so the load is a commission and then comes the question of what's a no-load? A no-load is a fund that has no commission. All right. So that's that's the very basics there. All right. And there really is, it has nothing to do with the performance of the mutual fund. The mutual fund is based upon.
3: The manager. The manager. The manager. Who's of minding that's the right. store. That's right.
1: Uh, who's actually doing the investing. Exactly. Now, this is what all the third party analysts, such as Morningstar and S&P, evaluate. They evaluate managers on the funds or the funds that are that are being managed, and so that's that's absolutely correct. the um, The question then comes down to, if, it, if there's no difference between load and no load, you can't go ahead and, and make a general statement that all no load funds have done well and all load funds have done poor, because personally if i ever advise a client to go into a load fund i usually like them to get in for no load that's
3: for- <laughs> right that's right i was going to say then the word then then the word becomes much
1: more important as to is it a managed or an unmanaged all right and now we come to the second part of this article and this is very important it's the question of active versus passive this is a huge storm of opinion that's raging right now amongst the investment world which is better active management or passive management now passive management is index funds mr bogle the founder of the vanguard funds he would make a strong case index funds do do much better however then comes the question of active management now active management is where there are managers who are attempting to beat the index And in this case here, most managers who have attempted to beat the index have not. So our friend Barry, who wrote this letter, he's absolutely right, most managers have not. However, that's the same thing as saying, well, Statistics say that over 50 percent of marriages end in divorce. Therefore, nobody should ever get married. I mean, it it doesn't follow that because most managers have underperformed that some managers haven't really overperformed.
3: And I think that's where it becomes a, a clarification of definitions, which is so helpful. That's right. Active, passive. That's right. And manager, it becomes the most important player
1: in all of this discussion. And and our writer who sent the letter is absolutely correct. I am against index funds. I don't think you should just float with the market. You can lose. I think you should find managers who have consistently beaten the indexes. And they are out there. Yes, they are. You should only have managers who have actively beaten the indexes year by year by year over at least the last 10 years.
3: And that 10-year mark is often a very important mark because it's going to include, just like everything have a positive and negative, we want to include the years when that manager has made money and when the years when that manager has lost money.
1: Right. So this article that he sent in focuses on load versus no load. It's an, it's a it's a non-event. It it doesn't make any sense to even look at that because of what I said. It's not evaluating whether a fund apples is, to apples, but active versus passive is the second issue, and this is crucial. And I am very much against passive funds. I'm very much in favor of active management. And then number three comes the question of something called alpha. Alpha also was written about in this article, and alpha is the ability. For a manager to give extra return with less risk. It's how we measure if he added value. That's exactly right, Deborah. So yes, indeed, we are against passive management. We want active management of funds. Number two, we don't care whether it's load or no load. It's best if you can get into a fund without paying a load. And those are the ones we prefer anyway. But most importantly is alpha that managers who we select have beaten the indexes and have done it with less risk.
3: And that's really where a financial planner, I think, really helps everyone, no matter what your income, no matter if you're looking at your retirement plan or your personal portfolio. If you can work with someone to identify what the end goal is and the time frame within it, then you're also able to go and look at the different managers, the different funds, their different styles, their track records, and whether or not they've actually
1: successfully done what you would like to happen in your own portfolio all right well i hope that helps our uh, unhappy listener i'm glad (laughs) he's been listening for the years
4: i hope we educated him a little bit for a consultation with doug or deborah lewis call lewis financial management at 919-872-7000 that's 919-USA-7000
3: well linda there was a article that you wanted to talk about that was uh in regard to women and financial planning, what did you find for us?
2: Well, this was a very, very interesting and uh, you know, just a well well uh, presented article about how women uh, it, well, women in general, with women, there's a financial divide and Many women live in the present, so they're focused on the here and now.
1: What do you mean a divide? You mean dividing women between women and... Well, and men. And men.
2: Because so. women are more likely to find themselves or their families coming up short. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been talking about retirement and having a secure future. Well, women face many responsibilities, and they're either uh, taking care of themselves And their families and so their financial security is being perceived as a a future event but now is exactly when they should be looking toward the future
3: that's right you know who who's going to take care of of the women who've been taking care of everybody else you know when will they have the financial security to take care of themselves that's got to be the biggest thing that's on most women's the women who call the office that is the biggest concern they have when am I, you know, when am I going to have time? So now is the time to take care of finding out if we're going, if we as a family are going to be financially able to make it. And then in the end, as if this scenario plays out the way statistically it, it's supposed to, he's going to die, and I'm going to be in the same boat I need to. I, I'm in right now. How do we? And then how do I make it?
1: Yeah, and there's all kinds or ages of women that are calling the office. We have the single woman. We have the women who are in their 40s who are taking care of a parent and children, sandwich generation women. Uh, we have the retiree women who have a, a spouse who is uh, ailing in some in some way or another. Uh, that's have, a really good article. So, I, yeah. You know,
3: I mean, at all these points in time, yeah. women are getting much more serious about I'm going to have to take care of myself and know about this stuff ultimately, even if everything, you know, goes well. Yes, it's very important. But it definitely is
2: sooner sometimes. You know, the the Department of Labor uh, did some studies and and the statistics are that half of the wage earning women in the United States, uh, less than half of the wage earning women in the United States participate in a retirement plan. And then women on the average work in jobs that maybe pay less money than men. So there's, uh, this, this is causing a potential income gap. And, of course, women generally live longer than men. So it, over their lifetime, they're going to require, you know, they're going to likely require more money when they retire, which in essence will leave them, with a potential retirement income gap. Mm-hmm. So that is a crisis that's coming. But, um, you know, and the question is raised, why do women feel that they don't have control over their financial future?
1: What did the article say? I didn't read the article. What Well, what the was article the answer?
2: said that many find little time in their busy lives to attend
1: to it. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that earlier. You know, that reminds me of your mother, Linda. I remember so much in the case uh, when your mother, uh, in the later years of her life, she had been taking care of your dad. She had done an extraordinary uh, job. Uh, She was financially not knowledgeable. She was very knowledgeable because she had worked in an industry where she understood, but she didn't have time for it. And by allowing us, asking us to come in and do the financial planning for her, she was able to go ahead and live the rest of her life just the way that we would have liked, that your dad would have liked it. In the same yes. case, in my mother.
2: And I, our hearts go out to all of uh, the women out there that are caregivers because you have big hearts taking care of those that are around you that you're caring for. And uh, you are the people that often compromise, uh, you know, your busy life and... Uh,
3: because you have so
2: many commitments. That's
3: right. And and then usually when there is that pause and when you know that you need to, it's having a financial plan that can provide that comfort and that security in knowing that if something anticipated happens, your family, you and your family are taken care of. It's that financial plan.
4: For a consultation with Doug or Deborah Lewis, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
2: And I believe
1: we have another caller. Bobby, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
2: Yes,
7: Doug. My husband just passed away, and I'm wondering about the life insurance. Is it taxable?
1: The uh, beneficiary mm-hmm. proceeds? Mm-hmm. No. They are not income taxable. Is uh-uh. that what you're asking about on the right. income tax? Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, what I guess um- our
2: condolences, Bobby. Well, thank you. What happened?
7: Uh, cancer. Oh,
1: big C. <laughs> Oh, wow geez. so how have you been left are you are you in 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 all right shape or
7: yes uh, we have a small business and you know I'm I'm financially okay mm-hmm. now my next question on this could I take this and put it in mutual funds uh, in my children's name and then if I need the money you know the revenue that it or the income that it draws could I take this uh, later on down the line myself and then
1: well, It'll let me ask a you a couple of questions here. Uh, first of all, give me some idea about your own income. About what is your income going to be now? Do you know? Uh,
7: about fifty thousand a year.
1: All right, you'll make about fifty thousand a year. And how many children do you have? Well, two, and they're grown. All right, two grown children. Right. Okay. Uh, why would you want to put the in, the the insurance uh, proceeds in the ch- in the children's name?
7: Uh, well, I figured if I put it there, then later on, at my time of death, there would not be any problem as transferring it over.
1: All right. How much is the insurance?
7: Let's see. There'll be about 60000
1: The first question you ask me is, can you get access to it if you put it in the kids' names later on? The answer to that question is no, you can't. Okay. Uh, you've made a gift. Uh, the second question is, why would you want to do it? Um, it, it doesn't make sense to put things in children's names when you're, uh, how old are you, in your 50s? I'm 55. 55. Well, you may have another three decades to live yourself. Mm-hmm. An awful lot can happen in 30 years. That means that you need to look out for you. If you set up a revocable living trust, that number at the office, by the way, is 919 mm-hmm. and put... All of your assets, including this 60000 that you just had, in the name of this revocable living trust. And then at that, that, what that means is at your death, it would be immediately transferred without any time delay, however you desi- desi- desired it to go. Mm-hmm. So the, the question of, of, letting, of being able to let it pass to the children easily is immediately solved using the revocable living trust strategy. But I would definitely not put anything in the children's names. Okay. In the revocable living trust, you can designate how much will go and what specific investment, if you want. will go to which child. You can say it will not go to a spouse if that child is divorced or going through a divorce. You can make it as restrictive or as permissive as you want.
7: Okay. That's what I needed, yeah.
1: Okay. And those are different trust provisions that you can write into the revocable living trust document Mm -hmm. and and yet you control it all during your lifetime which is my main concern
2: your children have many more years than you will ever have to accumulate particularly since your husband is no longer with you and and you know i don't i don't think it's selfish to think that you need to think of yourself first bobby um, and I'm glad that, you know, you have enough skill and, and probably wisdom in, in being able to continue the business since your husband is not with you. But consider that. And, and if you'd like, you know, to call our office, um, I'll be happy to give you the number. We could send you some information. Okay. That number in Raleigh is 919 That's USA 7000. So I would I would write down your questions, and then uh, it might be advantageous for you to work with a planner that can help you, you know, work through all of this. Okay, all right. Thanks for calling. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000. Or go to DougAndLinda.com. And listen again next Sunday at 6 p.m. for more Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Lewis on News Radio 680 WPTF.